Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am joined today by marketing wizard extraordinaire, Johnny Sanquist, CEO of Three Crowns Copywriting and Marketing. Welcome to the show. Daniel, thanks for having me. Okay, so I'm well aware of your brand. You're everywhere. I know lots of reputable folks who work with you, including our our very own Orion. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I have to know, because I don't know, what is the meaning of the three crowns? (laughs) Um, It's, I don't know. If If you're into ancestry and things like that, it's interesting. If you're not, you can you know, skip 15 seconds ahead. But uh, as, as I was exploring ideas for what to name my company, you know, there's always the old standbys, like name it after yourself and whatever. And that was just kind of boring to me. So I just started to do some research about, uh, you know, the countries that uh, my family is from originally, one of which you maybe can guess with the last name Sandquist is uh, Sweden. And um, Sweden has a symbol of the, the Swedish nobility, which is the three crowns. So the three crowns emblem is all over, over there. Their, their national hockey team is called Tre Kronar, which is a, a really horribly pronounced way to say three crowns in Swedish. So it's all over the place. I just thought it sounded pretty cool. And I, uh, I went with it. it. It is very cool. And I actually, I actually love the backstory. However, uh, as, as a guy who is married to a Norwegian woman, I think we are now sworn enemies, uh, being that, being Ooh. that Norway and Sweden love to make jokes about each other. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> so tough very to hear. cool. Very cool. Very <laughs> cool backstory. So, uh, speaking of Norway, Norway was prominently featured not last night in the Will Ferrell ad about the electric, uh, electric vehicles. And we are coming yes. off of advertising's Biggest night, the Super Bowl, the game was not much to write home about, uh, but there were some great commercials. Uh, And as expected, some brands tried to comment on things like the current political climate. Uh, You know, uh, Jeep was advertising, uh, sort of advocating for for political centrism. Uh, Some Mm -hmm. brands tried to comment on things like the state of the pandemic. In this sort of emotionally fraught, politically fraught charged climate that we find ourselves in, do you advise your clients to comment on things like politics, on things like uh, the, the racial reckoning that's going on in our country, uh, on things like the pandemic? Why or why not? So I think the very, very short answer that I would give is that, uh, yes, if you feel moved to comment on something, I think that you should go ahead and do it. The longer answer is a lot more nuanced, Um, but it's all in how you do it and how you present it, right? Um, I I thought that Jeep did a nice job with their ad. My my first inclination actually was a little bit eh on it. Uh, As I watched it, I was like, okay, you're just kind of hitting hitting all the tropes here with, uh, you know, the heartland and you brought in Bruce Springsteen and, 
and, and all that. And it didn't immediately resonate with me, even though I appreciated that they were trying to get across this larger method. Uh, but I think that they did it in the right way. They brought in, you know, Bruce Springsteen, who is this representative in pop culture of, of the working class. And so they brought in someone who's very popular with the target demographic for who that ad was created for. So that was the right step to put, put a face in front of it. So a well-respected face and then have it be like a message coming from Bruce himself, not just this faceless corporate entity, right? Not just Jeep. So I think the lesson there is if you're going to speak out, um, I think it's better to do it and, and associate it with a, a person within the firm. Like if you're the firm owner and you want to make this commentary, I think it should come from the firm owner. Be personable about it and don't just you know hide behind the company logo. So I think that that is, is a lesson there. Um, and you know, brands have a long history of doing this type of thing. Uh, Nike did it a couple of years ago with Colin Kaepernick, right? They had the, uh, you have to believe in something, even if it means losing everything. They had that campaign and it's very, very current. It, it, it hits into uh, this kind of electric vein running through things. And a lot of people hated it. A lot of people just, you know, don't like him still and what he stands for and what he did. Um, you know, by kneeling during the national anthem. And I think that if you're going to come out and commentate on larger events, you just have to be okay with that. You have to, you have to come out from, from the start knowing this isn't going to be for everybody, but is it for the people that matter to me? And that's kind of the guiding question with, with everything in marketing. You know, it touches on, you know, being yourself and being authentic and everything, but it always comes back to who am I making this for? And are the people that I'm making it for, is it going to resonate with them? And if yes, then go ahead with it. I think that's a great point. The point of a brand is not to be uh, everything to everyone. The point of a brand is to have an opinion and to attract mm -hmm. the people that you want to attract and in, in a very real sense, repel the people that you mean to repel. So just know that there will be consequences. I'm always, you know, I'm always curious and I don't have any good data on this myself, but you know, when, when Nike came out with the Colin Kaepernick um, advertisements, you know, there were certainly people saying, wow, like way to go Nike. I'm going to double down on my support for you. There were certainly people on the other side saying, that's it. I'm burning all my Nike stuff never again. I'm, I'm always curious, like, you know, how long lived either that, that affection or that disdain for a brand is, how it really translates um, to, to sales. But at any point, I think you just have to engage in it if you feel called to engage in it, like you said, understanding that uh, you're going to turn some people on and you're going to turn some people off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I always tell people that one of the best things that can happen when you send an email to your list is for somebody to unsubscribe because that means that it wasn't somebody that you need to be talking to anyway. So focus on the important people who, who want to be associated with you, who are receptive to your message and ignore the haters, man. <laughs> ignore the haters. That's going to be the yeah. name of this episode. Every, everyone has haters. The Beatles had haters. 
there's, I mean, you're crazy if you don't like the Beatles. I'm just going to come out front with that. But, you know, recognized by many people, greatest band of all time. When they came over to America, all of the newspaper articles were about this just terrible pop band coming over, ruining everything. So if you listen to that type of talk, you're not going to accomplish what you set out to accomplish. One, one of the things that I have learned from having a social media presence and from being a frequent public speaker is that there's nothing so benign or vanilla that, that people can't hate it. <laughs> sometimes, I, you know, sometimes I will yeah. say something. Sometimes I will say something that is a total throwaway comment, seemingly like the most middle of the road, passive thing I could I could possibly put forth on social media or in a presentation, and I'll get you know some sort of vitriolic response to it. So yeah, try mm-hmm. stop trying to move through life in in a way that's completely inoffensive. Uh, some people get up in the morning to get offended and, and realize that's always going to be the case and ignore the haters. So sticking sticking sort of with this larger point, I think this sort of dovetails from this conversation. You know, we're here in early 2021. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> we, had, we had hoped to leave the pain of 2020 behind, and yet it's been a tumultuous year once again. Uh, it can feel a little inappropriate to me to be self-promotional at a time when there's so much pain. Uh, but yet we know, you know, people still have to make a living. We're all selling something in a very real respect. So what tips do you have for sort of staying top of mind, putting yourself out there uh, when candidly what you're selling, uh, unless you're selling a vaccine or unless you're a doctor, what you're selling isn't really the biggest or most important thing on most people's minds at this moment in time. So this is, a really great question because it is going to allow me to, to speak into something that I have been thinking about a lot here recently. And I think at the core of the response is uh, when you're not spending your time in your marketing or in your social media, when you're not spending your time selling, you don't have to worry about being this abrasive presence in someone's social feed or in their life. So marketing to me is not about trying to make the sale. Uh, It is about, like I said earlier, uh, it it revolves around the people who need to hear it. And, And the people don't need to be sold on something. What they need is to get answers to their problems. And so, you know, the first stage of content marketing, the awareness stage, when people are maybe aware they have a problem or they're not even aware they have a problem yet, is to educate people and provide value to them, right? So when you're doing that, when you're approaching marketing from this others-centered type of mindset, this isn't, isn't so much of a problem. Uh, and I think that what this gets into is, you know, what's at the center of your marketing? And a lot of people will say it's something like being authentic, right? And, and, and authenticity, I think, is overused right now. To me, marketing runs on the idea of kindness. And I'll 
I'll unpack that a little bit. So, you know, everybody tells you to be authentic. Authenticity can be faked for a long time. It can ring, it can ring hollow. You know, people who aren't authentic can get out there and, you know, create an authentic persona. And you can fake it for a long time, but not, not that long. Eventually the cracks are going to fit show. Kindness can be faked too, but it's, it's way harder to fake that over a long period of time without laying that veneer drop, right? And, and it's because authenticity, if you just stay there and, and worry about, am I being authentic in my marketing? That's inward looking. If you focus on, on this idea of kindness, that's outward looking. And so what that all comes back to is marketing has to be all about others or else it doesn't, doesn't work. Authenticity is a good start because you want people to see the real you, but you have to quickly move past that. You have to embrace empathy over authenticity in order to, to make an impact on people. So and then, I, and then you don't have to worry about self-promotion because you're not promoting yourself. You're promoting things that other people need and other people care about. And you're simply along for that ride. You're there to guide them forward. It's not about you. Yeah, I, I love this reframe. You know, we, we typically think of marketing and indeed that's how I worded the question about self-promotion. You know, how can I increase awareness of me and my brand and what I'm selling uh, and, and what's profitable for me? But you're saying you flip that whole thing on its head, you put good out into the world, uh, you're empathic, you're kind, you, you're others focused, and heaven knows there's plenty of opportunities to be other focused right now. There's a lot of need in the world right now. And then you just rest secure in the notion that, that that's all coming back to you. And what's cool is that's actually supported by the data. You know, when you look at like Robert Cialdini's research into influence and, and persuasion and what gets people to do something, what gets people to, to do business with us, he has these six pillars of influence and he actually lists them in the order in which they're powerful, you know, from, from most uh, persuasive to least persuasive. His most persuasive tactic, if you will, uh, is, is reciprocity, just putting good out into the world and knowing that. If, if you're putting good out into the world, that good's going to come back to you. So I love that reframe mm -hmm. of don't spend this time trying to, you know, to shout your name or your business's name from the rooftops. Look for opportunities to help and, and know that that's going to come back to you. I, I think that's really powerful. Yeah, and I, I think it just, it fits so well in, in the RAA space, right? You operate as a fiduciary in your investment recommendations, in your financial advice, that fiduciary mindset applies to how you market your business. It applies to everything you do. Exactly. Well, and I've, I've said on this podcast and, and other places recently too, this last year, 18 months, this is going to be defining for, for folks in the financial advice space because either you were there for your clients at a time of great fear and you know health scares and market volatility, uh, or, or you weren't, right? So either you've got a client for life or you've got going to have someone who's shopping. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for, for the advisors who are putting that good out into the world to, to reap those rewards in addition to just doing what, what's right.
So mm-hmm. last night there was a, a nearly universal most hated ad. Uh, <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? I, this, yeah, I talked about it on Twitter with somebody. I was oh, like, is did this you? real? Yeah. <laughs> so it was the- Like I know what you're going to say. Yeah, the most hated ad was the Oatly Oat Milk CEO uh, sitting in a field singing, oh, wow, no cow, Right. So mm-hmm. I actually have some oat milk in my fridge right now from said company. And I just am embarrassed <sighs> to have to have supported this monstrosity. But but Oatly actually seems to have anticipated the backlash. They're actually selling. I totally hated that Oatly commercial T-shirts on their website. So, again, this makes me wonder, is this. I mean, is this smart like a fox? Is there is there truly no <laughs> such thing as bad buzz in a case like this? Or is a truly awful advertisement going to come back to bite them? So I, I find the Oatly commercial fascinating because I, I was doing my kind of my morning news roundup uh, when I got up this a.m. And I, and I was reading about the Oatly commercial and that is not a new commercial. It's, I think, from like 2013 or 2014 that they decided to reuse. And wow. so it was released in Sweden originally, like way back in the day. Everything comes back to Sweden, apparently, uh, at least on this episode it does. And, and it was banned from the country by the dairy industry. Like they got, they got in trouble with the dairy industry, man. Uh, it's like the mafia out there. So, so it's a banned commercial and they said, well, let's bring it back and use it to elevate ourselves in the U S market. So I think that given their prior experience, uh, they had to have known that on some level, that's probably why they were prepped with those, those shirts and everything, which I think is just fascinating and super smart to, to bring this already produced commercial out that you don't have to pay extra for. You just buy the ad spot and roll it out there nobody knows any difference but um as far as bad buzz goes i think that it depends on uh what you've done with your advertisement if your advertisement like theirs is kind of like this weirdly tongue-in-cheek absurdist humor type of thing and and people's reaction and commentary to it is what was that weird commercial that sparks some, some intrigue and some interest, even though there might be an initial, an initial negative reaction to it. And so that's, I, I think that adheres to that old adage of, you know, uh, no press is bad press. But if the cause of the bad buzz is because of something you've done that's truly wrong, then that's a different story. Uh, and you know, everybody knows this is a well-known story. So that's why I'll, I'll use it as an example, but everybody knows about the whole Ken Fisher thing from 2019 when he made some inappropriate comments and lots of bad press around that. And, and there was an initial reaction with some of the like larger institutional accounts and pensions and things that, that it, his firm served kind of postponed or, or their engagements are left. And so that was some you know that affected business in a poor way but at the same time his firm has has grown since then in leaps and bounds so uh it's just the magnitude i think of of the bad buzz you know that kind of type of 
thing, didn't reach the average consumer. So it wasn't going to really affect the average investor's decision too much because it probably didn't reach most of them. So the, the extent of it, uh, the, how wide a scope it is. And, and I think, you know, what type of, what type of reaction is it? Is it a humorous sort of let's laugh about this, or is it a, a very strong aversion because of values, something like that? Yeah, that's a great, what you want that's, to avoid. A, that's, a, that's a great distinction to make because it was like corny and absurdist, like you said. And I was like, wow, someone paid all this money. I, I didn't know it was an old reused commercial, but yeah, I mean, it was sort of corny and absurdist, but it wasn't offensive, right? I mean, it wasn't, mm-hmm. people weren't talking about it because it was wrong-headed or offensive. It was just kind of dorky. So that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very different yeah. ballgame. I think back to the Quiznos, little weird rat creatures that, that they had, you know, selling sandwiches <laughs> years ago. And it's like, it was just Love so, those. it was so gross and weird that you kind of sat up and took notice, which, you know, which, which says something. I mean, it's hard to grab people's attention. And here we are talking about oat milk on a finance podcast. And so they, they may have been crazy like a fox. Yeah. So Super Bowl commercials cost five and a half million dollars for 30 seconds this year. Obviously, that's out of reach uh, for, for most listeners of our podcast here. But I still think <laughs> there's something we can learn from them. So when you when you mm-hmm. dissect Super Bowl commercials and you look at the best sort of the pillars of of the best advertisements out there. What what do you find are the common themes and what can some small business owner take from that uh, and use in their own in their own business? Well, I think there's there's two takeaways that immediately come to mind for me. One is that with a lot of the commercials that I enjoy and that I've seen over the years, they'll take something that's maybe a little bit familiar and just put a little bit of a different spin on it to make it unique. Uh, and this actually comes back, back to kind of one of my, my principal content creation uh, frameworks, um, which I'll get to in a second. But so you think about the E-Trade baby. That was an awesome uh, commercial series and they had big Super Bowl spots like the whole talking baby thing had been done before that wasn't original what was original is, is they took this baby and and made him like talking to the audience and that he was you know this day trader the stocks guy uh, which was the twist it that wasn't a, a thing we'd seen before with the talking baby type of type of idea um, and so when you're looking at other advertisements, other marketing, the, the phrase you want to keep in mind is amateur artists copy, great artists steal. I think that's the right way to say it. Uh, I think if I got this right, this might be an internet thing where it's like, oh, Abraham Lincoln said this, but I think it goes back to Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci. And what it means is don't just do what somebody else has done, look at something you like that someone else has done and take it and make it your own and put a spin on it so that it's familiar, but it becomes unique. It's kind of like the whole Joseph Campbell, you know, hero with a thousand faces. There's only a handful of story archetypes, right? But it's the details and the twists and, and the way that you challenge assumptions in a story that make new stories, even though the core of that story is the same. Uh, from 
you know, story is story, that hero's journey. All the, the beats are going to be similar, but the way that you navigate from beat to beat in a story is going to be different. So I think that that's one takeaway. And I think the other takeaway in my eyes is humor can be fantastic. And I think that advisors have a tough time incorporating humor into what they do because there is such pressure to be seen as just this, uh, this protector and this person who is safe and secure and, and will guide you to stability and, and your money will be safe. But I think that humor is a very, very powerful emotion to be able to wield uh, in any way that you can bring out more of just that humanity, I think is, is something to pay attention to. Even if it's something silly, like some advisors will, you know, when you go to their bio page, you mouse over their photo and it'll turn from a serious picture into, you know, them having fun doing something goofy, silly face or whatever. Those types of things matter to people. It, it humanizes the types of people that they work with. And, and when I think about Super Bowl commercials, I like the best. Most often they're ones that made me laugh. And so I think that's pretty powerful. Yeah. So I want to take each of these concepts in, in turn, you know, the first one is interesting because you're right. It, there is a sort of a Joseph Campbell vibe to it, except the bottommost turtle is just babies and puppies, right? Like every commercial is just babies and cute animals when you get down to it. <laughs> how, do you, how do you put some sort of uh, some twist on that? So it, it's interesting. I think this is a real human tendency because when you look at the, the study of leaders, right? When you look at who gets elected, it's usually people who are a little taller, a little heavier, a little smarter than average. You know, uh, we want people who are kind of like us, but just maybe a little better, like a little mm -hmm. better versions of ourselves. We don't want the person, we don't want the president with the, you know, 100 and, 160 IQ. We want the president with the 115 IQ who is simultaneously relatable, but, but impressive, right? We want the president who's, who's just a little bit better version of the every man or, or every woman. So I like this idea of taking enduring concepts and putting, putting your own twist on it. I think it's deeply aligned with, with what I know about human preferences. And you know, the second piece is I think you're exactly right. As financial professionals, we don't want to be seen as, as unserious. And I do think that, you know, there, there is something to that. You don't want to be this absolute jokester. People think you're, you're being unserious with their wealth. But mm -hmm. we also know that, that money worries are the number one cause of stress in America. And it has been ever since we started measuring it. And so if, if you can't laugh about money, what can you laugh about? I mean, people have a real need to, to blow off some steam and let, let up some tension around money. So a, a dash of humor and, and taking a, a fundamental concept that's worked before and putting your own twist on it, I think are, are both, both great, uh, great uh, tips there. You know, I watched, uh, I, I've been watching a lot of TV at night, uh, homeschooling three kids, doing a demanding job. I am pretty much broken by every night at around eight <laughs> o'clock and it's, it's time to watch some TV. Uh, recently, I was watching the extremely highbrow show on HBO Max called Fake Famous, and it was about uh, influencers and it was about trying to take some everyday folks and see if this, you know, this documentarian could actually 
use what he knows about building an audience and, and make them famous. And it mm. got me thinking about this, this sort of mantra of modern life and modern business that, that everyone is a brand. So I think we, we yeah. sort of take that for, for granted now. But we also know that being extremely online uh, can have negative mental health consequences. Uh, we know that people like authenticity. So how do we balance these sort of multiple simultaneous demands of us to, you know, to, to take care of ourselves, to, to be a brand, but also to be real? How can we sort of balance all of this uh, while we're trying to create a personal brand? Well, I think that... First of all, you cannot put too much focus on taking care of your, your mental health. And there is certainly that pressure to always be on and always be publishing and, and always be involved. And I think if there's one thing that, that we've learned throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, it is that you have to give yourself some grace in that regards. And you have to, you know, maybe set up some firm guidelines on yourself to, to not engage, to give yourself space to disengage. Um, because the, the day-to-day can certainly take its toll. Um, and, and, you know, if you're, if part of what you think your personal brand is, is to be out there and to be a cheerleader and to be positive and be this positive voice, it can be hard to be that authentic self when you're not feeling that yourself. Right. And so I think you, part of it is, is to just allow yourself the space to not engage, to not have to always post, to not have to always be on. You know, maybe that means starting at eight o'clock every night, you set up screen time on your iPhone uh, to block all your social apps until 7 a.m. the next day. Maybe it's as simple as that. But taking care of yourself has, has to come first because if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be useful to, to anybody else. And, and I think to this comes back a little bit to what we talked about earlier with the idea of marketing framed around kindness and not centering authenticity. Um, it's, it's easier to get burned out when you're always worried about yourself and presenting your original self instead of creating content that centers someone else instead of centers you. And so I think, you know, being empathetic towards others, be empathetic towards yourself and, and, uh, you know, if you need to step away for a while in order to recharge, it's going to be okay. You're going to be able to, to get back, uh, to where you were when you're able to produce again at a high level. And to be honest, um, I went through this myself in 2020. I mean, about halfway through the year, I pretty much stopped writing blogs, doing videos, doing things for my business because I had hit that wall. I had to focus on client work and I didn't feel like I had enough of me between uh, the growing business I had and the family responsibilities. I didn't feel like I had enough of me to do a lot 
for myself. And, you know, to be super candid, I just kind of, for the most part, stopped doing a lot of things that I was doing. And from a business standpoint, that's the wrong thing to do. From a personal and a mental health standpoint, it was the right thing to do. And now we're in 2021 and I have kind of gotten through that phase. I feel recharged. I'm doing more than I've ever done and I feel great about it. And it you know, wasn't a setback for me, but I think if I would have just tried to power through and not give myself that space, you know, I think I would have set my back self back. Yeah. You know, I think this is my biggest learning of, of the last year or so uh, as, as well is I think when, when this all broke out in, in March or at least reached public awareness in, in March, I think I was like, wow, this is this sort of singular time. And I think like a lot of people, I was like, I'm going to learn a new hobby or I'm going <laughs> to, you know, I'm going to mm-hmm. take up baking or, or write another book or whatever. And then quickly I learned that the demands of, of life in, in lockdown were such that if I was, you know, if I was taking care of my family and taking care of my mental health and my physical health, that was, that was enough. Right. And that was, that was plenty. And there are times for, you know, there, there are times for just getting by and sometimes getting by takes a lot. And, but, but if you can make it to that next day, if you can make it to that next horizon, you, you know, you have the opportunity to do what you did, which is make it out of that place and, and get to a place where you're doing more than you ever have. So I think it's, it's great advice. So Johnny, I want to give a plug for your podcast, right? We're in podcast inception here, podcasters plugging each other's podcasts. So you have your own podcast, Taco Tech, uh, where you discuss wealth tech trends for the future. So I'm interested to know, what do you think is the most overhyped trend in wealth tech? And what is one that's underhyped or underdiscussed that you think has, has a lot of potential? Ooh, love this question. I'm usually the one asking this. So you're flipping things around on me. First of all, going to give a shout out to my co-host, Tori Hoppy. Uh, Tori runs relationships over at Fixed Flyer, and she is the real star of the show. I'm just along for the ride. Uh, but it's been, it's been fun, and Taco Tech is a, is a great thing. Um, the name is great. They're pretty funny because we, we talk about tech, but also we love tacos. So we always ask our guests about their favorite taco. But as far as the tech side of things goes, uh, the most overhyped trend, man, this is going to get me some, some hate. Uh, so I'll try to soften it a bit. I am I'm a believer in things like Bitcoin and crypto and AI and all that. But they are, are not at, from what I've seen, a mature enough state within wealth tech to be getting all of uh, all the attention and hype, especially on the AI side. Like I'm not seeing really, and I hope to, but right now I'm not seeing a lot of really compelling implementation of artificial intelligence in wealth tech. So at the moment, I'm going to say it's overhyped, but I hope that that changes in the next five years as more firms start to focus on it and think about what the applications of AI can be within their technology and the huge future trend. I'm going to go, this is going to seem like uh, 
I'm just kissing up, but I promise it's not. Uh, but I'm going to go with integrated banking and lending solutions for advisors, integrate into their tech stack. Um, Orion and Focus Financial just announced a, a partnership here. And I think that that's really important, especially as comprehensive financial advice continues to take center stage and be more and more of the average financial advisor's kind of core value prop. I think that that's going to become more critical to the client experience because you're going to get into these, you know, these comprehensive financial plans and ultimately you're going to have all these recommendations. And if, you know, half or a third of those recommendations are things you can't implement yourself, that's not a good user experience. Right. And so even going to that depth of being able to say like, Hey, I've got these integrated cash management options that'll fit, you know, this piece of your plan with what we want to do with your cash. I think that's a, a really big value add and it's going to become, it's going to become as, as expected as a client portal. It's just going to be one of those things that advisors are going to have to tap into. Yeah, I was, I was excited. I was excited about that integration as well, because I've, I've long thought that was one of the missing pieces of sort of a comprehensive solution. So I'm, I'm equally excited. So uh, keeping with this theme, let's say I give you uh, 250 grand and you have one year, that's, that's every guest of the show gets a quarter million bucks. So I give you, <laughs> I give you 250 grand in one year to build some wealth tech that you are then to, to flip for, for the maximum profit. What do you build for me? Oof. I've got a couple ideas. Um, I have some ideas about marketing tech, which is probably more of my arena, uh, seeing as how digital marketing is, is my life. But I'm not going to disclose what my ideas are there because they are uh, speeding ever so slowly at one mile an hour toward possibly becoming some tech one day. So I'll keep those close to the best. But the other thing I would love to see and what I'm thinking about is, is how advice is, is advice the next frontier in becoming commoditized or supplemented by tech. Um, so, you know, we kind of started out with investment management is commoditized and now we're moving into planning becoming commoditized. Uh, you know, e I think e-money is uh, going to be like an outs create outsource financial plans for people, right? So technology is starting to come in into that phase of things. So that last phase, the one that's untouched, the one that we always say is, is only something that humans can provide, which is the advice element. And I think that's true. Uh, I don't think that the advice element, at least nowhere close right now, and something that tech can take over. But I think there's opportunity to be had to be able to create some technology that augments the advice experience. And uh, funnily enough, I, I kind of like hated on AI earlier, but it's really all, it's all AI uh, centric to be able to pull in uh, like natural language processing and some different machine learning elements you you've got right now you've got some fantastic like di dictation tools like mobile assistant right but what they're doing is they're recording and transcribing a 
a session with the clients. So what's the next step? The next step is something that transcribes and records in real time. Maybe it's something that the advisors got up on their screen as they're going through a, a session with a client and it's monitoring and it's analyzing the statements that are made and, and how often things are referenced. And it's giving you feedback or it's pulling up questions to ask in real time using artificial intelligence. It's, it's maybe going to say like, hey, speaker one, your client has you know, referenced this three times in the past half hour. Do you want to come back to this? Do you want to ask more of a question? Or maybe it's going to you know, pull up uh, and just offer you some, some suggestions on where some additional questions ask, where to take that conversation. And I think that that, you know, we talk about the, the hybrid advisor. It, it was the whole advisor plus robo investments type of thing. But the true hybrid advisor is one that has, that has their advice in real time supplemented by technology to help them ask better questions, to help them guide conversations in more productive places to show them threads in a conversation that they might not pick up on or might not see. So that's what I would develop. Now you got me really wanting to write a check. So (laughs) (laughs) I think that's great, great advice. So Johnny, as we, as we begin to wrap up here, uh, we're going to move to the free association phase, right? Where I throw out a, a sentence or a a word or a sentence and you just kind of give me the first thing that, that comes to your mind. Okay. Got it. So you uh, live in Nebraska now. I will be visiting Nebraska soon since that's where my new headquarters is. What's the first thing I need to do when I visit Omaha? You need to visit Block 16, which is a restaurant downtown. Just everything, everything on the menu is incredible. It's not steaks. It's sandwiches. It's loaded fries. Uh, I can't say enough good things about it. They have a burger, uh, which I believe Alton Brown said is his favorite burger in America. Wow. Yeah. It's got fried oh. egg on it. It's amazing. Well, if it's good enough, uh, if it's good enough for that Georgian, it's good enough for this Georgian. I'm in. Okay. <laughs> Next thing, best taco that you've ever had. Best taco I've ever had. There's, there's so many. Um, I, I think the popular thing, which people would expect me to say if they've listened to Taco Tech would be to say it's from uh, Puestos in San Diego. But the one that I think has just, I don't know why it's embedded in my taste buds uh, was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. There was, uh, I think, it, I think the place was just called Taco Shack, something like that. It was just a little taco restaurant, but they had Korean short rib tacos that were, just incredible. I think I had like five of them. And, and I cannot eat five tacos anymore at my age. It's not a good idea, but I did that night and I did not regret it. Wow. Korean short ribs. I'm in. What do you think is the state of large conferences going forward? Oh, people that know me know I love to talk about conferences and in-person events because uh, I, I love being around people. It energizes me. I, I think that the big conferences are going to get back to where they were probably in 2022. Things like uh, Schwab, Morningstar, those type of custodian conferences. I think those have a, a good future ahead of them. 
I think that those more medium-sized and smaller conferences, we're going to see some attrition from those. I, I think that COVID has, has shown us, uh, you know, before COVID, people were talking about how the, the conference market is real saturated. And I think that's going to kind of uh, wean some of the chaff off of, of some conferences that maybe could consolidate or, or we're just duplicating some other focuses um, among, among multiple conferences. But I, I think conferences have some work ahead of them. I think that they need to really push uh, being more inclusive, uh, especially from a speaker standpoint and making some more effort to have more inclusive attendeeship. Um, you know, whether that's through just more approachable, uh, just making things more approachable to attend. I think there's a lot of community building that can be done throughout the year so that conferences are not a go somewhere for two days and be done with it, but there's a community and an ongoing engagement. I think that conferences need to show more value in the long term and not just those two days. Yeah, I, I actually love that. As a, as a frequent conference speaker, I think one of my frustrations is that sometimes I, I feel like I go, you know, I speak to a crowd of people and then, you know, my, whatever insights I've provided are, are gone by the second drink that night. And I think one of the ways that, <laughs> you know, I think one of the ways that we could do that is by building a community, building a, an ongoing educational effort that's always going to happen best in, in the context of a relationship. So, any conference organizers are listening, I think that's absolutely fantastic advice. So Johnny, you've been awesome. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, if people want to, to read your work or follow you on social media, where, where can we find you? Yeah. So three primary places. I am most active on Twitter. So if you are on Twitter, my handle is at John Ellert, J-O-H-N-E-L-L-E-R-T. So you can find me there. I, I tweet a lot about marketing. I tweet a lot about Star Wars, and in the autumnal season, I rage tweet about Nebraska football. So if you are into any of those three things, uh, (laughs) I'll be a good follow, and uh, we can chat there. Three Crowns, our website is threecrownsmarketing.com, and we also have a YouTube channel that we are populating more each week, where you can grab a couple-minute videos on marketing advice. All right. Thanks again for being here and hope you have a fantastic rest of the year. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.